If you will join me in Luke chapter 19, we will be looking this morning at verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, 1 through 10. The sermon this morning is entitled, Seeking and Saving the Lost. And our key words for our worshipers in training are tax, salvation, and lost. Now, Charles Spurgeon used to preach every Lord's Day to 5,000 people in the morning and then again in the evenings. He was a remarkable man. He was an amazing preacher. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. And then during the week, he was involved in all sorts of other ministry activities, uh, writing letters and books and um, creating an orphanage and homeless shelters. And one of his most remarkable things was that he created a pastor's college. He founded it in 1856 at the age of 22. Spurgeon wanted to train other men to be able uh, to bring the gospel to a needy world. And during his lifetime, nearly 900 pastors trained in that college, and as a result, almost 200 new churches were planted in Britain alone. Today, Spurgeon's pastor's college is still operating, and only the Lord knows the impact that it has had on the world for the kingdom of God. Well, one of the things that Spurgeon did with all of his students in that pastor's college is what they called the question oak. They would go out in good weather on Friday afternoons to a large tree just outside of Spurgeon's home. And they would sit there and ask questions of Mr. Spurgeon and also deliver extemporaneous sermons uh, at Spurgeon's request. On one of these occasions, Spurgeon called on one of his young students to give a message on Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, about a tax collector named Zacchaeus. So Spurgeon called the young man up. He sat on the grass with the other students, ready to hear what the student had to say. And the student rose, and he cleared his throat, and he began to preach. Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. Zacchaeus came down, so will I. And Spurgeon led the applause as the young man sat down. (laughs) Now, this story highlights the reality of what probably most of us think of when we consider Zacchaeus. We're prone to think of a little man who wanted to see Jesus. And in fact, this is probably one of the few names that I can say from the pulpit that perks up little ears among us because they know a song about him. I know in my house we've sang it at least 14,326 times. It's very important that we not forget that this took place at a certain time, in a certain place, with real people. Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus occupies a very important section of the Gospel of Luke. This is Jesus' very last personal one-on-one encounter with an individual prior to his arrival in Jerusalem for all the events that would unfold leading up to his death. Last week, we saw the last miracle that Jesus would perform. So we're going to look this morning at what Luke tells us, and I hope we can see this text with fresh eyes and really pay attention to what Jesus is doing here. So let's begin reading Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. 
he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he, Jesus, was about to pass that way. Now, last week we looked at the end of chapter 18 when Jesus encountered the blind man whose name was Bartimaeus. He was sitting at the city gates of Jericho. He was a blind beggar, and Jesus healed him of his blindness. He was a man lost. He was blind, and he was impoverished. Now, this week we see Jesus in the city of Jericho, passing through on his way to Jerusalem, and he meets a man who had been lost in his wealth and corruption. The story of Zacchaeus here is also connected to the story that we looked at a few weeks ago of the rich young ruler. Remember, Jesus presented the human impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. So we see all of this at play in the literary context of this story. The rich and the poor, the advantaged and the disadvantaged. And this all comes together to show the essential elements of genuine faith in Christ and a willingness to abandon all that is ours in this world that we can live upon Christ alone, regardless of what our circumstances may be. We learn from the rich young ruler, recall, that his money and his possessions had such a tight grip on his life that he was unwilling to let it go for the sake of Christ. But this morning we're going to see Zacchaeus do the exact opposite and to prove that the impossible is made possible by Christ alone. So who was Zacchaeus? Well, apart from what we see in this instance in the Gospel of Luke, nothing else is known about this little man. His name, ironically, means pure and righteous. We've met several tax collectors throughout the Gospel of Luke, so we know that his name was not very fitting for what he did. But Zacchaeus, Luke tells us, was the chief tax collector. We see that in verse 2. And he was very rich. Now, this is the only instance in the Bible where that title, chief tax collector, is used. So the exact meaning isn't entirely known, but most likely he was the head of the local taxation department in Jericho. He managed the local IRS office, if you will. And he likely employed others to collect the taxes, and then they gave that money to him, and he was responsible for giving to the Roman government their cut of the taxes. And Jericho would have been a very good place to be a tax man. The way through Jericho was an important trade route. It went from Jerusalem to the east, that goods could be transported. They had to transfer, they had to go right through Jericho. It was also a place for local wealth because they had a lot of natural resources. So it's no surprise that Zacchaeus was very rich. In fact, given that he was a tax collector, and in fact, not only that, the chief tax collector in a wealthy city, it would be a surprise if he wasn't rich. However, being rich comes at a very high price for a tax man. As we've seen already, tax collectors were the absolute bottom of the barrel for the people in the city. These were men that the people wanted nothing at all to do with. 
They were thieves. They were unjust. And they extorted large amounts of money for their own gain. If you've ever been audited, you probably felt a twinge of what it was like to have any kind of encounter with Zacchaeus. So his reputation wasn't good, to say the least. He's not one that, if we had a list of people, that we would pull out and consider a likely candidate for the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 3, Luke writes that Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus was. Why? Well, we don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. Why would he want to see this man named Jesus? At the very least, we can assume that he heard about Jesus. His name would have been very, very common all throughout the land. Perhaps he had even heard of the accusations against Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that was meant as a dig on Jesus. However, for a man like Zacchaeus, that may have been good news. So who knows what Zacchaeus' interest was other than just seeing this man who was so often spoken of. However, Luke goes on to tell us that the crowd was large and Zacchaeus was not. He was, I like how Luke says it, small in stature. Very proper. He was short. And just imagine how the crowd probably loved to make sure that this man that they so despised wasn't able to see over them as Jesus passed by. I just imagine him standing back here and they shuffle their feet to make sure he can't see and can't get through. But Zacchaeus was determined and he was resourceful. In verse 4 we read, He ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. You know, it's interesting to me here, and this is important to keep in mind when we see what happens, is that Luke says Zacchaeus' sole intention was what? To see Jesus. He wasn't like Bartimaeus, who we saw last week. Bartimaeus was blind, and all he could do was cry out to Jesus to have mercy on him. But he wasn't someone who wanted to touch Jesus. He didn't want to talk to him necessarily. He simply wanted to find a place where he could watch the parade, where he could lay eyes on him, which makes what happened next all the more remarkable. Let's read verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, two big things I want us to note here. First, notice what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Not, hey, you up there in the tree. But he calls him by name. Now, I think if I were Zacchaeus, hearing what he likely already knew about Jesus... And then having him call him by name, having never met him before, I would have fallen out of the tree and it would have been all over from there. But an important point that we see right here is this. Jesus knows those whom he seeks by name. There's another instance in John chapter 1. Jesus is calling the disciples and he calls Nathanael. John writes this, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, 
Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So Jesus basically tells him, You're amazed and you believe because I know who you are? That is JV stuff. I'm about to show you what it's really all about. But here's the point in all this. Jesus is divine. Jesus does supernatural things. And Jesus is seeking those whom the Father sent him to save, and he knows who they are, and he will save them. Brothers and sisters, this should be incredibly comforting to us as God's people. The Lord isn't just randomly, willy-nilly, calling out to people on a whim. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. He knows his own. And so when you were lost, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, the Lord Jesus called you out. He said, Debbie, come to me. Bob, come down here. He said, Glenn, come out here. I want to speak with you. Alan, come forth. You see, all of us were like Zacchaeus. And if we are really honest about who we were before Christ, we never expected that we would catch even a glimpse of Jesus, let alone having him call us by name. We never dreamed that Jesus would know us. We didn't care whether or not Jesus knew us. But he does. And he tells Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And that's the second thing I want us to take note of here. Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus if he can stay. He doesn't say, do you have a place that I can crash at tonight? No, he tells Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. This was a divine mission on Jesus' part. He was seeking out Zacchaeus, and he was there to save him. It was an act of sovereign grace, and Jesus did not give Zacchaeus an option, did he? This is an imperative clause here. Jesus is giving a statement of divine necessity. This is the day that I will come to your house. Today is the day of your salvation. You see, Zacchaeus may have showed up just to see Jesus, but having him stay at his home? Not even on his radar. He was still God in his own eyes. Zacchaeus lived upon his own righteousness. He lived upon his own formulation in his mind of what was good and what was right, or else he would have never defrauded his neighbors. He would have never been able to get beyond his conscience. But when you're a God in your own making, when you live upon your own self-goodness and your own self-importance, you convince yourself that you deserve what can only be gained through worldliness and through wicked actions. But for Zacchaeus, all of that was about to change. In verse 6, Luke writes that Zacchaeus hurried and came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. 
This surely would have been the first time that a clean, noble, respected person had come to the home of Zacchaeus. But this is the Lord Jesus. And he responds just in the same way as the father in the the parable of the two sons. He throws his arms around a wayward prodigal son in all of his filth, in all of his uncleanliness, and he's kissing him all over the head and reconciling him and embracing him. Now, of course, Zacchaeus received Jesus gladly. He was overjoyed that someone paid attention to him. Even more importantly, it's someone who matters. You see, no Jew would have gone to his house. He was one of the most noted participants in evil deeds in their community. No question about it. He was guilty of all of his corruption. He was guilty of all of his crimes. But Jesus goes into his house because he is seeking to save a lost man. He is about to thread the camel through the eye of the needle. And he's on a divine mission established by sovereign grace on his providential timeline. Jesus knows exactly who Zacchaeus is before he ever meets him. He knows his name, though he's never heard it. And he calls on him and tells him, I will stay in your house because Zacchaeus has an appointment with salvation. And so, of course, all of the people of the community hearing this, they were overjoyed that Jesus would turn their attention to Zacchaeus, right? They were amazed at his love and his compassion. They were intrigued by knowing who this man was and filled with wonder at this situation and said, isn't it wonderful to see the grace of God toward a sinner? That's how they respond, isn't it? Not quite. Let's look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You just hear it, right? He's a sinner. No self-respecting Jew, let alone a rabbi, would dare be polluted by the chief tax collector, the most corrupt of all men. And then to eat a meal with him, to stay in his home overnight, outrageous. But we could easily predict that response, can't we? Outraged at the supposed incorrectness, the lack of religious scruples. We have to also recognize that there were people in the crowd who were just looking for something. They were, they were just waiting for some action on the part of Jesus to take them the last few steps of being convinced that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But now he's undoing all of their previous ideas of who he would be as the Messiah by defiling himself in this way. It's just against the grain of everything that was part of their religious thinking. But this was Zacchaeus' appointment with salvation. And the people, yet, didn't care. They didn't care about Zacchaeus. They hated Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully, and all the people grumbled. They never got it. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? All the way to the end, they're holding on to their vile, damning, self-righteous religion while Jesus is saving sinners who have no merit and nothing to commend them to him. 
It makes me wonder how it is that we think about others. Do we consider them to be beyond the salvation of the Lord? And what happens when the most unlikely person in our life becomes a believer in Christ? One who maybe at points we've considered our enemy. How do we respond? Well, at this point in the story, the curtain goes down on the day. They're at Zacchaeus' home. So let's see what happens next in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, Zacchaeus spent his whole entire life isolated from having any kind of genuine relationships. He was isolated from the temple, he was isolated from God, and now he's bearing the massive weight of the burden of extortion and corruption in his heart. But something dramatic happens instantly. Now, what do we suppose brought him to this? Well, all we know from the story is that they went to Zacchaeus' house, and the very next thing we know, he has a repentant heart. He's seeking to be reconciled to others. So we can assume at the very least, he spent the evening talking to Jesus. And we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us what the conversation was. But we know at least he was hearing about the kingdom of God. He was being made aware of his sinful condition. He was being made aware of his need for repentance. And so what happens as a result? I'm giving half of what I have to the poor. And I'm restoring fourfold whatever I've defrauded. You have a man here who made a living off of selfish gain. And yet instantly, he's transformed to live as the most generous man in the region. Notice how Zacchaeus addresses Jesus. What does he call him? He calls him Lord. He's confessing Jesus as Lord. This is foundational. He's genuinely calling Jesus his Lord. He is a new creation. And this is essential to salvation. So the first thing he's saying here is, you are my Lord. But secondly, we see this dramatic change. Half of my possessions go to the poor. Now, Zacchaeus surely possessed a lot of things. Remember, in verse 2, we learn that he was very rich. But in one day, he was so totally transformed that he went from being a taker to being a giver. There was nothing required of him to give half of his goods to the poor. But think about this comparison that, that Luke most certainly wants to make when we saw the rich young ruler a few passages earlier. Remember, he was talking to Jesus and asked him, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus narrowed in and pinpointed the man's covetous heart, and he calls him to sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. And Luke writes, when he heard these things, he was sad, for he was extremely rich. And he turned around and he walked away. That's how Luke described him. You see, when Jesus asked him to give it all away, he refused to do it. He didn't ask Zacchaeus to do that, but willingly Zacchaeus did. 
You see, with God, remember, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with man are made possible. And here we go. Luke gives us an example that with God, a rich man can thread the eye of a needle. Why? Because he was sought and he was found by the Lord Jesus Christ. True righteousness results in a transformation. And it's a transformation that hits at the very core of your personal dominant category of sin in your life. For Zacchaeus, it was his money. For you, it may be pride. For others, it may be certain habits, a way of doing business that doesn't honor the Lord. It might be anger, immorality, homosexuality, whatever it is. But the fruit of true salvation comes as transformation in these areas. Transformation by God strikes a death blow at the core categories of our, right, uh, of our wretchedness. And we see that very thing here with Zacchaeus. He is transformed immediately in the area where he is most consumed by his sin. And instantly he becomes a godly man. So often the Bible talks about the generosity of genuine saints. 1 John says in about five different places, something to the effect of this, don't say you love God and then withhold what you have from a brother in need. The point is that true righteousness results in an unselfish, generous life. It results in self-denial. It results in the abandonment of all that's stained by sin. So Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor. Half of his accumulated wealth. Remember what James writes, faith without works is what? It's dead. Remember in Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul says that we are saved unto God and we are given works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, generous, selfless, good works are a natural overflow of a supernatural work of God in the life of a believer. And that's what we see here. We see the results of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So Zacchaeus has designated that half of his wealth will be given away. But what about the other half? He has plans for that too. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Anyone I've wronged, I will give back to them four times as much. How many people would that be for the chief tax collector? Hundreds? Maybe thousands of people? Just play that scene out in your mind, what that would look like. He would have his ledger in front of him looking at all of the transactions. And remember that this is not a parable. This is something that really happened. A real man in a real place at a real time. Can you imagine how many weeks long that line was to receive back from Zacchaeus 400% of their original loss. Now his commitment to a fourfold return was even well beyond what the law of God required. In fact, a fourfold return was only expected when someone was robbed with violence and destruction. So Zacchaeus penalized himself with the maximum penalty according to God's law. 
So in saying this, he's saying, I've done this and I've done it violently. I've done it destructively and I will gladly pay back the maximum. Zacchaeus knew the law. He knew that a fourfold payment wasn't required of him, but he was genuine. And this is really important because this highlights genuine faith. Zacchaeus wasn't asking, how little can I get by with and still be okay? Instead, he's saying, show me the maximum demonstration of obedience. That is what I want to do. That's the real deal. He was determined to do more than what he was asked. He was determined to do more than what the law required. And so the obvious question for us here is, what about us? When you look at the command of God in the life of a believer, are you constantly asking the question, what is the minimum requirement? How can I do the very least and still be obeying the Lord? I want to say that if that's our mindset, there's really two very deceptive things going on. The first is this. If we're asking that question, we've adopted a mindset of works righteousness. God requires obedience, and God commands many things of his children. But if our mindset is that we simply do the least, and then we're supposedly okay, we don't understand what God has saved us from and what God has saved us to. Let me say it this way. If you're seeking to know what God requires of you and you want to do the very minimum, you're not honoring God and you're simply appeasing your own conscience because you have a works-based mentality that when it comes to your salvation, instead of obeying the Lord out of a proper fear of God and a thankfulness of heart because of what he's accomplished in rescuing you from the power of sin and death in Jesus Christ, you'd rather ask the question, what does it, <coughs> excuse me, what does it take to skate by with and still, in your mind, be okay before the Lord? That's not gospel-driven. That's not grace-fueled responses to God. It's works righteousness. Secondly, if we're looking for the minimum obedience, we don't understand grace. And even worse, it may be that you've never experienced grace. You see, the sovereign grace of God in the life of a believer sets us free to be like Zacchaeus. We're not slavishly bound to what we have, only seeking to do what's absolutely required of us so we can have all of the rest of life for ourselves. But instead, when we experience true sovereign grace, it does exactly the opposite. Grace makes us incredibly generous with all of life. Grace makes us to give of ourselves and our stuff in such a way that we look foolish and reckless to the world. There's things we don't do, there's places we don't go, and there's stuff we don't have because we are so fueled by the grace of God to be generous. And when we've been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we're not looking for the minimum because it's not as though we could obey God too much. But look at Zacchaeus, because he's the model for us here. There wasn't anything saying he had to give half of his wealth to the poor. 
And he probably would have given more, except he needed the other half to repay everybody fourfold. This is the kind of obedience that makes the one who's denied himself and taken up his cross and followed Christ. The one who doesn't live on the minimum, but lives at the maximum level of obedience. Zacchaeus acted as if every illegitimate defrauding taxation was destructive and violent and devastating. And he strips himself of everything he has, even his honest gain, that he would live for the sake of others. So how does Jesus respond to this? Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There was clear proof of Zacchaeus' transformed heart. Jesus declared that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' home. And by faith, Zacchaeus had become a true son of Abraham. He now shared the faith and works of Abraham. He was of the spiritual seed. In Jesus, he had met the horn of salvation that was prophesied just before Jesus' birth. And he was the one who would, he believed in the one who would give the people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Zacchaeus was a new man. Zacchaeus gave away his fortune. You know, non-Christians are often very quick to criticize the gospel and say that it's, it's sentimental and it's impractical. But if the gospel is impractical, it's not, it's not the gospel's fault, it's our fault, if that's the reality. Because the demands of the gospel and the life of a believer are so intensely practical, and they, they include a reorientation of one's entire life. And highlighted here is one's material possessions. Our, our grip on things is dramatically loosened because we recognize that our hope is not in this world. Our treasure is in heaven. Uh, I joked with our small group a few weeks ago that I feel like uh, there have been a lot of times throughout the Gospel of Luke where I've had to preach about money because it keeps coming up in the text. And I said if we have any visitors who come on a few different Sundays to check us out, they probably think, man, all this guy ever talks about is money. I'm just reading the Bible. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. <laughs> so, but we, we've seen that a lot in the Gospel of Luke, right? Jesus talked about money all the time. Why? Because it has such a grip on the hearts of people. Remember Luke 6.24, Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. And Jesus pronounces this woe because in their self-sufficiency, the rich can become the opposite of those whom he came to preach the gospel to. As he said at the onset of his public ministry in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to whom? To the poor. In Luke 12, verses 20 and 21, bears these solemn words to all who trust in riches. It says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. 
And Luke 16, 13 records Jesus' material spiritual axiom. He says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And remember in Luke 18, the response of the rich ruler. And Jesus says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said over and over and over that it is useless to talk about loving him and trusting him and having the sweet assurance of forgiveness and a glorious hope of heaven unless it makes a difference in our material possessions in all of our worldly attachments. Strong emotion and deep, sweet feelings and confidence in forgiveness are all very nice things if they open our hands. Jesus' repeated emphasis is that, through, is that, that generosity is not a means of redemption in itself, but it is evidence of true redemption. We see that in Zacchaeus' life, Right? In fact, generosity and giving are pillars of true discipleship. No one truly follows Christ who's not learned to give of themselves and what they have. And the faithful church will proclaim this. Not to serve itself, but to serve Christ and to serve his people. Now think about yourself. Think about your own walk with the Lord. Perhaps you've gotten to a place where you've reached sort of a a plateau or a sticking point in your spiritual development, and you wonder why that is. You read your Bible sometimes, you're concerned about spiritual things, you, you want to obey the Lord, but regular generous giving of yourself and your time and your possessions, well, I'm not quite ready for that. You see, we've, we've somehow convinced ourselves by our deceptive hearts That obedience in several areas of life can make up for disobedience in other areas of life. So when I'm confronted with my lack of concern for things that God is concerned for, I can turn to those things I'm doing well and say, yeah, but these things are going so great, so let's, let's forget about all that other stuff. Let's worry about these. But you see, when we're transformed by the gospel, it doesn't work that way. All of it matters to us. All of it brings us concern. And it causes us to stop growing and to stop progressing as Christians when we think that way. And then we get frustrated. And we get bored. And we get agitated with other believers when we see them growing and progressing and we're not. And then we get to a place where we start blaming others. We start blaming the church. We start blaming our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're looking at all the circumstances around us and outside of us so that we can pin it on those things. When all the while, it's been our own hearts. The question for you, Christian, is are you bored in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you discontent with the worship of God and your place within the church of God? Because I assure you, the problem is not out there. It's in your heart, and it's an unwillingness to give of all that you are for the sake of others. Dying to self, walking in a life of holiness and obedience to all that the Lord calls us to as his children. 
the Lord Jesus tells us in this passage, he didn't come to get us going and then sit back and watch and flounder in the faith. Zacchaeus is a great example of this. The Lord came to seek and find you and to save you and to set you on course to walk in the good works that were prepared for you in a life of holiness and obedience to his word. This is the reason that Jesus came into the world, to seek and save the lost. He was on a mission to save those who have been covenanted to him by the Father. One commentator writes this, Zacchaeus had not sought Jesus. Jesus had sought and found Zacchaeus. And in a few days, the good shepherd was going to lay down his life for the sheep, including Zacchaeus. God was the first seeker in the Bible and still seeks the lost. The loving act is that he came to save, making clear that his saving work was a stupendous act. And we know from Scripture that it was one act of grace, one act of righteousness, one act of obedience. There is a helplessness in those who can do nothing to save themselves, but there is an ability in Christ who did everything. Is it any wonder that we preach that it is total folly to attempt to add anything to the work of Christ? The Son of God became the Son of Man in order to seek and save sinners. None of his sheep can escape his all-seeing eye or elude his all-sufficient grace. All whom he came to seek, he finds and he saves. And not one of his sheep will escape the shepherd. No one he saves will ever be lost. For the salvation he administers is a permanent work of everlasting grace. And the saving faith that God gives to the elect at conversion will never cease. It will continually, everlastingly throughout time last and endure because it's a supernatural faith and it is created and sustained by God himself. And so if we are Christians, we can rejoice. But if you're not a Christian, the question is, is the Savior seeking you? Is the Savior calling out to you to come down because he will make himself at home in you forever? The call is for you to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ because he is seeking and saving the lost. And if this is you, you will know it is because you have interior unease. Nothing satisfies you. Even the things you consider the most privileged delights are less than what you assume them to be. You're never really comfortable You lack wholeness, you lack a clear conscience, you lack peace, you're always sneaking around, you're always seeking to find ways to cover your lies. But understand this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. And he liberates and he sets free in Christ alone. Christ is seeking you and if that is so, You are at the sycamore tree and he is saying, come down. I want to dine with you. I want your soul. I have sought you. I am seeking you. I am the son of man. I am the awesome God. I am a faithful savior. I have died for you. Come down. And you may say, I'm too small. 
If you knew my heart, you wouldn't say that. And Jesus says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a big heart. I will give you my heart. Come to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the work of Jesus who seeks and saves the lost, who transforms our lives, that we no longer are self-righteous, self-sufficient seekers of the world, but that because Christ has sought and saved us, we become seekers of Christ alone, seeking to know him, to love him, to delight in him alone. And so I pray, Lord, that that transformation that takes place in the life of your people would make us to be ever more generous with our lives, not just with our stuff and our money, but also with all of our lives, with our, with our hearts, with our time, with our emotion. All of these things, Lord, make us to be a more generous and giving people that we would be like Zacchaeus who looks to what the Lord has done in us and transforming us and making us new creations and recognizing that it sets us free to be wholly different from the world around us, that we're not seeking our own favor and our own gain, but we're seeking to live in a way that makes Christ look as glorious as he is. And Lord, I pray for those whom Christ is seeking, that you would call them down and that you would transform them and make them to be new creations in Christ, that in them you would be glorified and that as a church, as your people, we could rejoice and be glad with all the angels in heaven that you have called another of your children onto yourself that they might enjoy and delight in Christ alone. Lord, would you do all of that for your great namesake, for your kingdom's sake, that the name of the Lord would be hallowed on all the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.